Hello, thanks again for listening to the Digital Sociology Podcast. My name is Chris Till, and uh, in this episode I'm talking to Frank Pasquale, who I'll introduce properly in a moment, um, but he's um, he's been doing some really interesting work, um, and we'll be talking about mostly about his book, which was published a couple of years ago, called The Black Box Society, and I'll put a link up to the book in the description of the podcast episode um, and some more details of how you can track uh, down uh, more of Frank's work also on my blog which is thisisnotasociology.blog and you can get in touch with me there uh, as well as uh, via Twitter at Chris H. Till uh, and uh, as always I'd, I'd love to have any feedback and to hear what you think about the podcast so over to my interview with Frank. Hello again. Um, Now I'm talking to Frank Pasquale, who's Professor of Law at the University of Maryland and the author of The Black Box Society. So, hi, Frank. Oh, hi, Chris. Good to be on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for being here. Um, Yeah, it's really great to talk to you. Um, I've been uh, been following you on Twitter for a while and I've read read some of your work and I've been uh, really taken with it. And so um, I'm really pleased to have you here. Oh, well, thank you. And the feeling is mutual. I've recently did this article on corporate wellness programs and my co-author and I really got a lot out of your perspective on that so it's great to be on the, and I've been listening to the podcast too and so it's really terrific to be on it oh great that's I'm just really pleased there's people out there that are listening to it it's not it's not just going out into the into the ether so that's good, that's good news. <laughs> um so uh, yeah so I think the, the 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 work that I've really engaged with uh, the most of yours um and I think it is, is uh, uh, certainly being uh, very well read I think is is your book, uh, The Black Box Society, uh, which I think was published in 2016. Is that right? 2015, yes. 15, sorry, right, yeah. Um, and um, it's, um, we'll start with the title, actually, because I think the title is, is, uh, really captures um, the essence of the book um, and of a particular kind of uh, analysis, which, of course, is what, what a title should do. And so um, you kind of suggest that we're, living in a black box society or at least we're getting towards that um and from how i understand it you're trying to kind of capture the way in which we're controlled by hidden forces that um um, very few of us properly understand um so uh, what kind of control is this um do you see that uh, what uh, what kind of control are we being um exerted over sure and i mean not to be too lawyerly but i i guess i would say that the it does talk about algorithms controlling money and information and then sort of influencing us and in, in some respects controlling certain people and certainly controlling their opportunities and life chances. And I think that the, the key behind the black box metaphor and why I thought it was a particularly fruitful metaphor is because it operates on two levels. One being our classic sense that there's a black box in a plane and that monitors everything. And the second being in the engineer's sense that inputs go into a black box and outputs come out, but we don't know how it transformed the inputs into the outputs. And I put those together in terms of saying that we are a lot like the plane, that individual consumers and citizens are being continually monitored by very powerful corporations and governments, but we don't really have a clear sense very often of how those inputs are being transformed into outputs. And also, once we get a sense of that, um, we have very little chance of actually influencing it for the better or to reflect democratic or popular values. And one of the things that's been most gratifying in the three years since the book is published is just enormous public attention to 
uh, Facebook, Google, the mm-hmm. banks, um, <laughs> government surveillance programs, which I think have shown that it was it wasn't just sort of a, a, a scare tactic. That actually a lot of what I was talking about were really very powerful influences that could change the shape of history. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, we can maybe get onto that a little bit more later. Uh, your, your kind of opinions, uh, if you have any on. On, on those developments but i think um uh, a, a lot of the things in your book are, are either coming true or uh, if they were predictions or or j- just your analysis is it's almost becoming um a kind of mainstream opinion which it, which it wasn't so much uh, necessarily uh, a few years ago um and uh, yeah that must be really uh, that, must, that must be quite uh, gratifying uh, for you from that perspective but i think that that uh, that, that, that dual um that kind of dual metaphor is really, um, really pertinent. That that technical aspect of the, the uh, or technological aspect of a of a, of a like a black box, uh, like you might have in in a plane, um, uh, as well as the, that not knowing what's going on in that black box. But the the the, the black box, the, the technical element is really interesting to me as well, in the sense that it seems we're increasingly carrying around with us black boxes like those that are on planes there precisely to record our movements. For um for for whether that's for legal purposes such as the kind of the little boxes people uh, sometimes insurers encourage people to have in their cars or whether it's our, our uh, Fitbits or phones or, or any other devices um yeah I th- and I think that the, the way that that's um that kind of cultural shift is is quite significant actually of um willingly being monitored in that way um do do you see that as a significant um, break, or do you see that uh, as a kind of a continuation of older forms of um, uh, of monitoring? I think there's a break, and here's how I would describe the break, sort of tying it in both with some economic theory and with the current developments of this week, uh, with res- mm-hmm. a rather alarming one in terms of the quantified self and other uh, self-monitoring, is that it appears that at least one major life insurance company in the U.S., is now no longer going to underwrite uh, its sort of basic life insurance policies and is going to require people to wear, to have wearables to monitor their fitness activity, uh, uh, heart rate, et cetera. And this is something that, you know, a lot of folks online were saying, we've been warning about this, et cetera. And I think it goes beyond warning. I think we really had in Scott Peppett's uh, 2011 article, which is on the personal prospectus, and uh, big data, he argued that um, we can't talk about willingly anymore in many of these contexts because there's a problem called unraveling, which is, you know, we could think about a relatively simple model, like imagine graduates from a college are applying to jobs, and at first only the people with the top grade point averages uh, put their overall grade point average on their resume. Mm. But then uh, more and more people do, and once you get like 30 or 40% or 50%, then all of a sudden, if you don't put your GPA on, people will assume discredited informa- discreditable information about you, that you right. actually have a low GPA, et cetera. And I think that that's essentially what is going on in many of these areas. And that's this is the thin end of the wedge, the camel's nose in the tent, pick your metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's where we're going, is we're seeing that sort of um, demand for a full mm-hmm. disclosure future based on predictable... Um, outcomes of uh, data sharing and the types of uh, attributes that people will attribute to you 
if you don't engage in data sharing. Um, I also want to say that I mean I'll wait for later to talk about how the Chicago School of Economics saw this pretty early and actually thought of it as a way to um, accelerate uh, neoliberal trends in much of the economy. Um, but I don't want to get too far afield from your question. So yeah. No. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. That's. Um, I want to hear more about that. Um, who is it that you see is implementing these kinds of controls? Um, so the, these kind of um, uh, the, these quantified measures, these um, kind of algorithmic forms of control, because as you kind of point out there, there's a certain kind of relatively voluntary aspect to that um, in, in that kind of in, at least in terms of that unraveling uh, aspect that, that there are people uh, willingly um, monitoring themselves or willingly putting out scores and measures of themselves like the, the GPA um, example you gave there. And of course, people willingly kind of tracking their health or, uh, or, or other behaviors. Um, but where does, where does the control lie? Who is, who's, who is it that's uh, got that control that, that's being exerted? Is it, is it corporations or governments or someone else? That is a terrific question in terms of thinking about structure and agency here. Mm. And I mean, I think that the, and I, on the one hand, I'm really glad you asked it because I often go back in my work to this um, essay by um, an epidemiologist, Nancy Krieger, called Where is the Spider? And mm. her essay sort of starts by saying, well, there's all this epidemiological research that talks about webs of causation for bad health outcomes, other social determinants of health, et cetera. But who are the people ultimately pushing these things? Mm. And I think that for a long time in social science, it was relatively fashionable to never try to blame people, you know, to sort of to blame individuals or to blame corporations was seen as the mark of a conspiracy theorist or yeah. um, someone that was, uh, <laughs> you know, simple minded. <laughs> but I think that as economic concentration continues apace, it becomes much easier to sort of look at who is creating certain defaults uh, on their uh, machines, on their software, et cetera. And I would know, you know, and it's also, by the way, possible to go in the other direction and to develop these technologies in a more emancipatory uh, way. Mm. I'm thinking of a recent uh, Yale Law Journal essay, which talked about how if we were really serious about overtime laws, we could hard code into Slack uh, or other work equipment the requirement that emails not be delivered to people during certain non-work hours, et cetera. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so I think it's a lot of it is that these companies are sort of creating um, competitions, and they, when they see a, a competition they can create that they can profit from, from, they try to encourage people to opportunistically engage. And it's another problem is people's optimism bias. Most people think, oh, I'm going to, I think 90% of drivers think they're better than average drivers <laughs> in the US, right? So then, so then it's very easy for progressive to give these snapshot machines, and then for people to say, oh, well, I've got to put it on my car so I can prove I'm better than everybody else. But um, that's uh, another dynamic. So yeah, so it's very interesting. It's interesting to think about, you know, whom to blame exactly. But I think it's a it's an alliance of corporate forces seeing an opportunity for profit by starting a competition among individuals, and then people um, either rationally or irrationally estimating their chance in the competition as being very good and getting involved. Yeah. Okay. That's that's yeah. That's that's so that's so useful. And I think that. Like you're saying there, there is maybe that kind of shift away from this. There are a certain amount of things um, of these kind of critical angles in which people did previously um, associate those kinds of 
uh, those notions of blame with uh, with with kind of conspiratorial thinking. Um, but um, even if if we take uh, these um, very well known examples, such as uh, you know, Facebook's involvement in, with um, Cambridge Analytica and and you know with the kind of the um, the uh, Russian in, uh, interference with uh, the U.S. election and things like this, and even Mark Zuckerberg went quite quickly from a position of it's crazy to say that Facebook influences people's voting to um, to kind of at least publicly totally accepting that um, all their systems were complicit and and um, and implementing changes uh, to try to mitigate that. So, uh, do you think there is a, a shift in thinking even amongst those those designers? those people who are building in those biases, that there is some awareness of, of certain, um, certain biases there. Yes, I do. And I, uh, I mean, I think this goes in two directions right now. And it's really going to be interesting to see how it developed. Just to gloss uh, or to build on your point about Facebook, um, very recently, it was uh, a study has come out saying that it's quite possible that the Russian interference with the U.S. Uh, election via Facebook, other means, actually did throw the election to Trump, given that it was so mm. close. It was really about 80,000 voters in three states. And uh, it's quite possible that that happened. I remember, you know, when that was being sort of talked about over a year ago, the sophisticated position among both many communication scholars and establishment journalists was of course, you know, we could never know and, you know, mm. or it's, it seems impossible, it's deeper root causes, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that we have to be really careful about that type of minimization. I'd also say, though, there is always a strong uh, lobby within establishment social science for agnotology, you know, for mm. uh, what Robert Proctor called the uh, effort to cover up or, uh, or discredit sources of knowledge. And I'm reminded particularly of people in political science who say, well, we have no idea if campaign finance in the U.S., where people are corporations and rich people are donating huge amounts of money, we have no idea if that actually affects uh, the ideology of politicians. Um, they may have just thought that way anyway. you know. And, yeah. it, and it's, it's a really bizarre um, uh, struthiousness, you know, sort of an ostrich-like effort to put mm -hmm. one's head in the sand that you sometimes see in these areas. Perhaps the implications of accepting social reality are just too overwhelming to do so. Um, but I think that that's another problem. So I think that, you know, you are seeing an effort to address these problems. But the problem, I think, for Facebook, to get back to the, the point of your original question, is that, you know, as the Evan Osnos profile of Zuckerberg in The New Yorker recently revealed, this is someone who seems to be very much out of their depth. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, a group, a pe person who's run a company and promoted people with technical intelligence but has really deeply neglected the type of sociological, historical, philosophical, anthropological research that would be necessary to understand the complexity of the problem that they're facing as they are sort of building this world historical media empire. Yeah, I think I, I'd never thought about that. That kind of um, that point you make there is really fascinating. Of uh, that kind of sophist um, uh, that supposedly sophisticated around agnotology and built around well we just can never know and you can't you can't lie uh, uh, um, lay kind of p particular kind of causes at any particular door um, actually is in itself obfuscating um, yeah that's that's fascinating um, we'll just dive into a bit of the, the more of the kind of the nitty-gritty of what you of what you talk about in, in your book actually as well so um, you discuss a lot 
um, credit rating. And, and I, I'll acknowledge this is not something I've really thought about uh, very much at all before reading your book, but the, the power of credit rating um, really comes, uh, credit rating agencies and systems um, really comes through in, uh, in your book. Um, and um, why is it that you see that kind of credit, those credit rating systems as being so, uh, so powerful? So I think that that ties into the overall structure of the book, which mm. is to offer a theory of reputation, search, and finance. Mm. And my key insight, I think, in terms of structuring the materials is that reputation is how we are seen by the world. And by world, I just mean you know, people that are trying to understand us as potential consumers, employees, students, um, other ranking and rating systems. That search are my term for a lot of the media that sort of intermediate ourselves between ourselves and the world, and finance are the forms of uh, ways of um, allocating resources. Um, and I think that, and in the book, I try to tell us reputation being nested within search, being nested within finance, in the sense that financial imperatives are really the key thing. They're sort of calling the shots. Um, but also, I point, I look at the ways in uh, forms sort of interact. The bottom line with respect to the credit rating agencies, both uh, rating companies and then consumer reporting agencies or other similar entities rating consumers, is that what they're trying to do is they're trying to um, use data to give snapshots of people's creditworthiness, trustworthiness. Now there's over 4,000 scores in the U.S. So there's all sorts of scores. Your, your uh, likelihood to adhere to a medication regimen, your likelihood to commit fraud, et cetera, et cetera. And this is all framed as being data-driven. But the most important point about it from a critical perspective is that when people are making these judgments supposedly based on data, let's say even if we concede the data may be accurate and useful, a lot of times what that means is that everything that is not counted as data doesn't count in the decision. And so this is a real yeah. problem, I think, because we have a lot of data sources that are um, even if they're accurate, are partial, are really only very small clues to the truth. And so in the name of accelerating the evaluation of individuals and the assessment of reputation and cheapening that, uh, we're creating a lot, a lot of the companies involved in this are, are and gov governments are engaged in injustice. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose that, um, but the, the, the those particular, they, they may be partial, those, those ratings, but they are things which can be measured, so therefore they, they get used. Um, is that, would, would that be right? So um, potentially, relatively, even if there is some value to some of those particular ratings, um, their value maybe gets overemphasized because they, they, uh, they are the things which can be measured, unlike some perhaps potentially more useful or, or more meaningful things. Which which can't yet be measured and therefore can't feed into the into the into the system. Yes, and and, and well, this is an area where our thought about what to do about the problem is really needs to be very complex because, on the one hand, classically, the demand has been to say, well, I you, you know, you're judging me on the basis of say my payment rehistory with respect to a credit score. But in fact, I am better than that. Uh, my payment history maybe was bad for 
reasons that were only could be isolated to a particular point in my life for mm. something I was going through at that time. Um, and then the people behind big data credit scoring will then probably say, oh, very good. Well, give us more data. Mm. You know, let us download the entire contents of your phone, and that way we can compare you to other people and see if you're like creditworthy people with respect to how often you use your phone. You know, do you leave it off for eight hours a night so we know you sleep well, or are you typing uh, random times all night so we might be able to infer some level of mental distress, etc.? They may say that. And so the problem becomes that in the name of advancing justice and anti-discrimination, we may essentially fall into the trap of acceding to a more total surveillance. Yeah. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do, the similar thing happens in AI, by the way. You, you, whenever you critique an AI system, people will say, well, thank you for offering that critique. We'll now use that and make the version 2.0 much stronger, right? yeah. much better. And it's very hard to get out of this trap of either critiquing the use of data and then falling into the trap of, well, we need more surveillance, or critiquing AI and robotics and then falling into the trap of saying, oh, yes, well, your critique will be in version 2.0. And how, how we do that as a society and how, we, <laughs> and how we develop anticipatory social science, which is Alondra Nelson's term for social science, isn't simply trying to clean up the mess or trying yeah. to study the mess created, but to actually articulate a vision of a better future. That's very difficult. Yeah, because I suppose the, the danger is you just keep feeding the machine, um, and it, and it keeps it, yeah, it, and uh, that doesn't really challenge it. But um, I wonder if you could say something about uh, you kind of hinted at the the kind of um, discriminatory um, outcomes or, or consequences of of these kinds of ratings and reputational systems, um, and the and the algorithmic um, and AI uh, aspects as well. Um, what kinds of um, uh, what kinds of discrimination uh, or inequalities do, do you see them as, uh, as as producing? I think the most important form of discrimination and inequality is the vicious cycle effect that I describe in I think chapter two of the book, yeah. which is one where you know people on the basis of some negative uh, data they do worse in a certain area of life and that spreads like contagion or a ripple effect throughout the rest of their life. So you see an increasing pressure and this is part and parcel of the big data method to correlate, say someone that does badly credit wise, oh, well maybe they won't be a good employee. Mm. And then they, then they may get worse job opportunities and it's like, oh, well, look at that, we were right. Mm. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, this yeah. Is, and this is a real problem. And this is, the, I, think, I think, the most important thing to take a look at of course, also, I mean, the, the, a key thing is the problem of racial or other forms of bias within existing data sets or marginalized groups, you know, people being rated poorly and then that being treated as data and that essentially launders the bias. And, mm. you know, Jan Elster was talking about this sort of laundering of preferences way back in the 1980s. So, you know, this is a, a problem of longstanding recognized by social scientists. So all of these are, are I think, really critical problems with um, the use of some of these big data, predictive analytics, AI systems. Yeah, I, absolutely, and I think that that um, that really comes across strongly in your in your book. And it's, um, I think, that, yeah, that spreading from one from one area to another is um, um, it, it must seem uh, for, for for individuals in those circumstances it must seem really seem that like that gets out of control. Um, but and I think that the um, um, one of the uh, one of the dangers here seems to be as well the the kind of um, 
a lot of the data which is being produced or which, or which is being used um, in these in these contexts, um, possibly the people producing it might themselves see it as uh, banal, entirely banal or um, inconsequential, but it is having significant and real uh, consequences. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a huge problem, and that you know, you people are very easily led into believing that. Oh, what can be the difference if I, you know, let this piece of data go or that piece mm. of data go? What is hard to see is the mosaic effect. Any particular tile in a mosaic doesn't really tell you much, but once it's put together into a mosaic, it tells a lot. And so that's the, I think, the, the critical problem there. And I think that that really comes back to your um, that the aspect of your uh, black box metaphor. And one thing that um, one of the things that really struck me was the way that you articulated. Um, uh, the significance of uh, of secrecy in, in the functioning of power, and I'm going to get your uh, the, the quotation wrong now, but um, it, you you state something along the lines of that uh, um, this um, the, the 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 systems uh, that are gathering the data on us know almost everything about us, and we know almost nothing about them. Um, they're in, almost entirely kind of obfuscated, and so. We, we know that we're producing this little bit of data here and this little bit of data there, but we can't see how it's all put together. But uh, the corporations, the rating agencies or Facebook or, or, or whoever um, can see that. And that's really where, the, um, uh, where a significant amount of their power comes from. That's exactly right. Yes. I mean, and I think that this is the, the power comes both from the obscurity and from the ability to just sort of lurk in the background without people being fully aware of what's being done. I would say, though, that one of the things that I do get into later on in the book that you know, I think is important is that it's not just a book about transparency. It's also a book about sort of critiquing known uses of data mm. and saying that these are unfair. So I think we start with you know, the transparency problem, and that certainly is a huge problem, and we want to get algorithmic transparency. But we always have to move beyond that to actually demand algorithmic processing of data that reflects public values, fairness, uh, due process, et cetera. Oh, yes, absolutely. That's really important. And, and uh, what kinds of ways would you see it, would you see that as being uh, possible? Because you, you kind of highlighted earlier that there's that danger of just kind of uh, uh, feeding into um, more, more invasive and, and more kind of data hungry systems. Is it, is it, is it possible, would you suggest, to, to find ways out of that and to, and to, and, and to have better, more kind of, uh, maybe democratic or more kind of um, um, uh, uh, less kind of unequal or less discriminatory um, algorithmic systems? I do think that that is possible. And I do think that that is the move of the folks in... Oh, sorry. I, I do think that is possible. And I do think that that's the move that is being made by folks in the algorithmic accountability community and within... The groups calling for fairness, accountability, transparency, and more in machine learning, the FAT ML crowd, FATML. So that's a good, that's a good thing to see. It, 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 that is sort of the key thing to realize is that, that that's one part of the movement. But another part of the movement is to try to preserve, I think, certain parts of um, human rating, ranking, evaluation, etc., so that they are done by human beings and also mm -hmm. or to ensure that there's a better um a cooperation between human beings and machines yeah 
Okay, thanks. That's been absolutely fascinating, Frank. So much for uh, uh, thank you so much for talking to me, and um, I'm really looking forward to. Uh, I know you're working on lots of things now, and um, um, look forward to uh, reading all your work in the future. Well, thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be on the podcast, and thanks so much for running this. It's such a service. Oh yes, thank you. Uh, hopefully, um, people are, are, are getting some use out of it. I'm, I'm trying to push it onto my students, at least, anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Um, thanks a lot then. Goodbye and uh, hopefully speak soon. Oh, sounds good, Chris. Thank you.